Well, happy Summer Sunday, church. Glad you guys are here. If you got a Bible, I'd invite you to go ahead and grab that thing and turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7 is going to be where we're at today. And if you're new with us, we've been journeying through this entire book of Hebrews, kind of going word by word, verse by verse. Last week, we hit about 25 verses in Hebrews and then about 125 verses from the rest of the Bible. Today's going to be a much different uh, feel. Today, we're going to hit one verse. All right. So uh, grab in, buckle up and uh, put your helmet on because it is, it is one of my absolute favorites. Hebrews 7, 25 is going to be where we're at. As you're turning there, I want to say a special word to anybody who's, who's new to MCC, kind of new over the course of the summer. We have this event at MCC it's one of my absolute favorite things that we do is called Connecting Point. And this is really the place where you can go from being just somebody who comes in, kind of sits in and experiences what MCC is. And you actually get to a place where you really do feel like you're connected. I believe God created all of us to experience connection with other people. And that connection is best in his body, the local church. And so we'd love to get a chance to connect with you. There's childcare at it. There's free food at it. It's July 30th, right after this service. Uh, again, we're catering in free breadsticks. I shouldn't really have to explain a lot. I should just be able to say, hey, do you want free breadsticks? Show up and you should be there. But it's gonna be awesome. I can't wait to be there with you guys. Y'all at Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25 yet? Yes. Praise God. All right. If you're not, <clears throat> I'm gonna put it on the screen so you will all be on the same page. Hebrews, oh, just kidding. That's salvation. We'll get there. There it is. Hebrews 7, 25. Let's read it together. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. This is our passage for today. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. One more time. Nice and slow. Just one verse to chew on today. Chapter 7, verse 25. Holy Spirit, help us to hear what you're trying to say. Consequently, he, that's Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. One more time. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredibly simple, but yet incredibly powerful truth. There are a lot of things that your word tells us and explains to us, but there may be nothing that I'm thankful that your word explains to us more than it explaining how we can get to you. We thank you, Jesus, that you paved a way, that you give us saving grace, that you give us unending mercy, that you chose to give us something we do not deserve and you chose to withhold the very thing we do deserve. And I pray today that your word, as we read it and as I preach it, it would be both living and active. It would be living in the effect that it actually makes a difference in our living of our lives. And that it would be active and that we would be different, that we would be noticeably changed because your word activated and encountered something that changed something inside of us. Regardless if we have been in church, we have been in saving grace, or regardless if we know you like a friend and a brother, there is still things for us to take steps towards as we yearn for what is to come. And so change even the most seasoned saint. And Jesus, I believe that your word and power of your gospel can change, transform, and melt even the heart of the most sinful. That the wayward, that the prodigal, that the person who feels destitute and feels full despair because they know that they are sinful. I pray that your word would show them that they are not too far gone and that you are a God who saves to the uttermost. In your name, amen. As you get ready to dive in today, I wanna kind of know who I'm talking to 
everybody this time of year is going on vacations. And in regards to vacations, there's kind of two groups of people. There's people who like to go to the beach for vacation and they just sit there and look at it. And then there's people who like to go to the mountains for vacation and they hike through them and look at it and do all those things as well. And so I'm gonna kind of know who I'm gonna talk to today. So if you're the type of person who's like, when I go on vacation, I wanna go to the mountains. Let me see you, mountain people, my people. You're my people, okay? Not as many of you. Um, Beach people, all right? That's like the majority, all right? So you guys like going to the beach, that's awesome. Um, The thing that I think pulls most people to those locations, when you get caught up in the grind and the monotonous of like work and work and work and parenting and kids and life, the thing that calls us to escape to places that are riddled with beautiful things of creation, whether it's a mountain stream or it's a beautiful alpine lake or if it's the waves crashing on the beach or the beautiful sunset or sunrise that you may catch. I think there's something hardwired within us to go to those places where we can see the beauty and the majesty of creation because we were hardwired to connect with the creator behind it. We love going to these places and it doesn't really have to be something that we go on a vacation to experience. You can hear the magnitude of God in a summer thunderstorm and you feel like, oh man, like that's, I'm witnessing and I'm taking a part of something that is bigger than myself. And as much as we would wanna go to creation and it does, I believe, tell us some things about the type of God we serve. Creation does a really poor job in connecting us with the maker creation can show us that there maybe is this higher power out there. There is something more powerful than us there. It can be one of those things that drums up that emotion inside of us when we're at the giant mountain or we're at the coast of the beach. And we say things like, how could somebody see something like this and not believe that there is a God? It makes us say things like that. But at the same time that it makes us say, how can you see this and not know that there is a God? It still doesn't answer the question, how do I get to him? How do I actually connect with the maker behind the mountain, the artist behind the turquoise blue wave, the Lord behind the lightning? See, creation doesn't give us that. They don't show us how to connect. And if you could look at creation and kind of where it falls short, the truth is even our digital age falls short as well. When you look at the world that we live in, at this point, because of the internet, we can have almost any question you could ask answered. Like if you want to know how many elephants tall Mount Everest is, Google will help you figure that out. Like if you want to know when Captain Crunch was created and when Crunch Berries were created, the much better version of Captain Crunch, amen. You can figure those things out online. If you want to know who won the last 57 Super Bowls, you can figure out all of those things online. Google does a great job about telling you how to get things like washboard abs or a better marriage or how to get more money. But here's what I'm trying to explain to you. Google actually is not necessary to answer and to help us know what is the solution to humanity's greatest need. How can I solve my biggest problem? The biggest problem of how do I get to God? See, today what I wanna preach to you and show to you is that the thing that we all really need, regardless of where you're at, what you've experienced, the thing that we all most really need is this word, salvation. This is what you have to have. This is what is behind the urging and the longing to go to the beach in the mountains. Like you think you, you, inside your heart, you think you want a vacation because work has been really hard this year or your kids have been extra annoying this summer. But I'm here to tell you, deep behind, if you're going behind and below that feeling is the urge to connect with the creator that you were designed to experience your forever with is a longing and a need for salvation. Now, what is amazing about creation is it can show us little glimpses of who the creator is, but it doesn't tell us how to get to him. What's wild is you could go melt all the polar ice caps and see what is underneath every glacier, what's hidden beneath all of that ice, and it will not show you how to get to God. You could go to the far most remote jungle and there in the jungle, you will not find how to get to God. You could go explore the bottom of the ocean and it will not tell you how to get to God. There's only one place where The creator shows how to get to him and it is through his revealed word. And here in his revelation, he shows the path to creation. 
And today, as we've been journeying through Hebrews, what has happened is we have stumbled upon one verse that I believe most succinctly and wholly expounds upon what is salvation than maybe any other verse in the entire Bible, Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him through Christ Jesus because he always lives to make intercession for them. Today, my goal is to not expound upon nerd out things like Melchizedek or how the high priesthood relates to our priesthood now in Jesus. My whole goal and aim today is to help you know what in the world is salvation so that you know that this is either something that you have either rejected or this is something that you actually have. That either this is something that is sustaining your life or is this something that has become non-essential to your life. So we're gonna walk through this verse and navigate through some of the questions that it asks, navigate through some of the truth that can only be found in it. And my hope today is you leave understanding how great is the salvation that you have and how much is on the line if you neglect it. So let's go to our verse. Consequently, he, that's Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I am not much for outlines, but today I'm actually gonna give you one. Here's how we're gonna break this apart and navigate through this. It's a lot of questions, but I think at the end of the day, you have to go and ask questions to able to get the answers. And once you have the answers, then you know what to do with life and you know whether or not you actually have it. So here's how this passage will break down. Who will be saved? Then we'll talk about the extent of Jesus' ability to save. And then from there, we'll explain the reason why he can save. All three of these huge life-altering questions are answered in our passage. First, let's start with the big one. Who will be saved? This is a big deal. Who actually is somebody who can be saved? Who is somebody who can receive the salvation out of this broken, messed up, fallen world that we are in? I love the passage. It gives us the answer really clear. Those who draw near to God through him. Now, let's just camp out on that word, those, because this is a big deal. When the question comes up, who can be saved? Those. It doesn't say those Baptists. It doesn't say those Presbyterians, those Methodists, those Christian church, those disciples people, those people who have drums at their church, those people who know drums are from the devil. It doesn't say any of those things. It just says those. Those is all inclusive. Those is people who used to be Buddhist. Those are people who used to be Muslim. Those are people who used to be atheists. Those are people who used to be Satanists. If you are one of the those who comes to Jesus, you can be saved, which is, which is awesome. That, that anybody, regardless of what they've done or haven't done, can actually come in and enter experience this life that is only found in Jesus, those. So the next question is, where do they come? Okay, if anybody can come, where or to whom is it that they come? Again, this is where a passage does a great job in showing this. It's those, and again, the those equals anybody. It's those who draw near to God. Those who draw near to God. Now, I know I'm talking to a room full of people, many of whom is not their first time coming to a in-person local church gathering, which is why when I say who can be saved, it's those who come, where do they come? It's coming to God. That is dangerous for your ears. Here's why. It is very easy to confuse coming to church with coming to God. And I'm here to tell you very loud and clear, coming to church does not equal coming to God. The same way that Going into a garage does not make you a car, no matter how hard you try. I mean, you can get on all fours, you can make car noises, you can do all those things, but despite your best efforts, just because you're in a garage, you will not be a car. And just because, friend, you are in a church, there's nothing special about these four walls. You can send just as good in your row as you can in Sin City, Las Vegas. It's just as possible. And so, we're at this place where we've got to realize that 
what we are very susceptible to as people who hopefully some of you have gotten this habit of consistently coming and gathering as a local church is the danger of living a life that is for Jesus. Now, I know some of you are like, what? It's, it's dangerous to live life for Jesus? Every church, camp, or sermon I've ever heard said live life for Jesus. Why is that dangerous? I wanna show you. If you got a Bible, flip to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter seven, verse 22 and 23. This is Jesus talking to a group of people who came to church. This is Jesus talking to a group of people who acknowledged him as Lord. This is Jesus talking to a group of people who did things for Jesus, who lived life for Jesus. It's one of the most scary passages in all of scripture. And it should be especially scary to churchgoers. He says, on that day, and the day he's talking about there is the judgment day. There's gonna be a day where every single person is going to have to give an account and answer this question. Who was Jesus to you? And does your life show that that was who he was? There's a judgment day coming for every single one of us. We will have to give an account for our sins. Either they will be fully redeemed and forgiven by Jesus because of the life that we lived with him and the faith that we put in him or we will be accountable for our own. And that will not go pretty for any of us who think that we get it on by our own account. And he shows that by giving the example of these people. It says, many, now that is a scary word, many. Many will be deceived and confused. Many will think that their good works made away from them in. It says many, which again, it's a terrifying verse, almost every word should cause us to approach it with fear and trembling. He says, on that day, the judgment day, many people are gonna say to me, Lord, Lord, they acknowledged him as who he was, the Lord and Savior. They're acknowledging him, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Now, let me ask you just for a real question. When was the last time you cast out a demon? If you can remember, like, come talk to me after church. Like, I, like, I thought I did one time, but I think it was just a kid who was having bad dreams because he was drinking a lot of Red Bull. Like, I, I don't think, his mom thought he had a demon. I don't think he, I don't know, who knows. I prayed as hard as I could and read as much scripture as I could. And we, I don't know. But I look at this resume and I'm a pastor. I do this for a living. When I look at like prophesying in his name, casting out demon in his name and doing miracles in his name, I, honestly, I kind of look at my life and I go like, well, their resume is better than mine. And it can be intimidating. Cause like, I'm going, well, I preach the Bible every week and I love my wife well and I treat my kids good and I try to pass the church the best I can and I try not to cuss in McDonough traffic. Like I'm, <laughs> and I look at their resume and I'm like, man, they're killing it. And they didn't get in. So, so they give Jesus their resume. They're like work cited page. He's, tell, he's telling them what they've done. And, and it says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is, this is frightening. And what I'm trying to help you see in this is going back to the question, the big question of, of where do they come? Is it coming to what they can do for Jesus or is it actually coming to Jesus? See, these people, I believe, and this is what I'm talking about in the danger of living a life for Jesus is you can be so consumed with doing things for Jesus that you wake up and you realize that you never actually knew him. That you did a lot of things for Jesus, but what you missed out on was the reality that Jesus is not so much concerned with what you do for him, but Jesus is much more concerned with what you do with him. And he comes to offer us not just a for God life, but he comes to offer us a with God life. That's why his name is Emmanuel, God with us, so that he can be with us and we can do life with him for his glory. And the key reason here, I think there's proof positive why these people never really actually came to God and experienced Jesus for who he is. Maybe they leveraged the power of his name. Maybe they acknowledged that he was really important and they should do stuff for him. But the proof that they never understood really who Jesus is, when asked to cite why they deserve to be given entrance into the kingdom of God, the rest of heaven, what did they give as their reason for being brought in? Their works, 
Jesus, look at all the great things we did. We cast out demons. We made miracles happen. We prophesied in your name. Jesus, look at all the great things we did. How do you know that you are not a Christian? When asked why you should be saved or why you deserve to go heaven, if you cite what you do or what you've done, you don't know Jesus. You don't know what he's done. The person who comes to Jesus in the right way, the person who gives an account of why they would ever deserve to be saved will never ever, even for a second, mention something they've done. It will all point back to Jesus. And so to summarize, coming to God doesn't mean coming to church. Coming to God doesn't mean doing things for God. Coming to God means reckless surrender to his amazing grace. Now, to go a little further and pull apart, what does it not mean to come to God? Well, coming to God does not mean coming to God when it is convenient for you, when it fits your program, your schedule, your way of doing things. Coming to God does not mean I'm gonna give you this piece of my life here at this point in this date, and then um, a few years later from now, I'll give you my sex life. I'll give you my uh, work, and I'll pray for you to give me a good job, but I don't want you to control what I do with my body. I will give you my attention, and I will acknowledge you when I'm asked to fill in a blank, but I'm not gonna give you my finances. I'm not gonna let you be Lord of my debit card. I'll trust you with my eternal security. Security, but I don't believe you're enough trustworthy of God for me to do what you call me to do with my money. Yeah, you can have eternal security, but I got too much to manage down here with this bank account with $53 in it. <laughs> do you see how, I mean, again, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just reading you my journal from college, okay? <laughs> the problem with our hearts, and you know this, you've experienced this, is the human heart, I'm not talking about the cardiovascular thing that's beating inside your chest right now. Your heart cannot be given to anything in pieces. And God will not take your heart, he will not receive it in a piece as well. Jesus made it very clear, I'm not after bits and pieces of you. I'll either have all of you or I'll have none of you. He says, if anybody wants to save his life, he will lose his life. But the person who loses his life for my sake, they will gain eternal life. And this is what's wild is sometimes we treat God and Satan or God and the world like they're this broken up marriage and that they get to choose who gets joint custody of us. But I'm here to tell you, you can't walk one arm locked with Jesus and the other arm walked with Satan. He is going to tell you to get off of the fence. There's no fence in Christianity to sit on, to straddle. You will not be able to have joint custody with Jesus. He will not just take you on the weekends and holidays. He says, I have to have all of you. And so how do we come to Jesus? We come all to Jesus. So that begs the question. The next one that naturally flows from that is what does it actually mean to come to God. What does it mean to come to him? And again, I think our our passage shows us very clearly. To come to God must mean that I'm leaving something else, that I'm leaving some sort of life behind. I'm leaving behind my sin. I'm leaving behind my mistakes. I'm leaving behind my will, my way, what I think I should do. If I'm gonna acknowledge that you are Lord and Savior, it now means I am not. So I come to him and that implies that this God who I'm now coming to is my desire, is my fulfillment, is the one who I love and I'm placing my trust in. And to answer the question, what does it mean to come to God? It means to pray, believe, and place my trust fully in this God. And the natural next question is how? If that's what it means to come to God, how do I do that? And this is where our passage, again, I love this passage. How do I come to God? He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. God is here. His son is here. How is he able? How is he able to save those who come to him? He is able to save them because they go through Jesus. And there's nobody There's nobody who has entered into salvation. There's no soul in heaven right now who did not come into that place by going through any means except through Jesus. And you, friend, there is no amount of good works. There's not an amount of 
with a little bit of Jesus mixed with a little bit of other things that will get you to the place where you actually have come to God. You will come to God through Jesus or you will not come to him at all. Jesus made this incredibly clear in the gospel of John. He said these words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is where you see one of the great paradoxes in Christianity. And it's wrapped up in this verse. He says, any of those who come will be saved. If now the thing that was incredibly inclusive gets incredibly exclusive. Christianity is at the very same time, a super inclusive religion, but at the very same time, a very exclusive religion because you will only come into a relationship with this father if you go through one way. The one who says he is the way, the one who said he is the life and the one who said no one will meet the father. The one behind your urge to sit with your feet and toes in the sand, the one behind your urge to rest, relax and receive a respite from this broken fallen world. The one who you were created to be with from all eternity. There's only one way to see him. There's only one way to find him and it is through his son. So if that helps us understand and know how they come to God, the next question becomes, when they come, what is it that they are coming for? Why is it that someone would come to this Jesus? If the only way to get in is to come to Jesus and to enter in through Jesus, how do I approach that Jesus? in order to receive the salvation and this entrance in to the very thing, the relationship with the Father that I was created to. How should I come? What do I come for? Many people have come to Jesus or come to prayer in moments of urgency. Jesus, if you'll just help me pass this test. Jesus, I just need a spouse. Jesus, just let this baby be born. Just, Jesus, just let them not find out that I did that thing. Like, why do, you th- why do we think Jesus is gonna answer those prayers? That's the stupidest thing ever. Like, Jesus, help this sin happen. He's like, no, that's kind of what I'm not for. Um, <laughs> many people have prayed, talked to Jesus. Many baseball players, Jesus, just help me hit a curveball. <laughs> We've asked Jesus for all sorts of things. What is the right posture of coming to him that is a posture of entering into and coming to him that actually makes him go, yes, friend, you have came to me in the right way and now you're receiving the thing that you really most need, which is not the ability to hit a curveball, not the ability to have a child, not the ability to be out of debt, but actually the ability to know that your eternity is secure in my father. How do they come? It's almost like the... uh, prisoner of war who's trapped in a prisoner of war camp. He tried his best to be as strong as he could in this battle and he did everything that he could, but he could not avoid being taken captive by his enemy. He's in the prisoner of war camp. He's being taken advantage of. He's been beaten, trod down. He's been so close. If there was a way for him to end his life, he would have already ended it. And someone shows up, meets him there in the middle of the night and says, hey, I have good news. I got some connections. And here's what I'm gonna offer you, big guy. Next season on The Bachelor, NBC's The Bachelor, you're gonna be The Bachelor, all right? (laughs) You're gonna be the guy who's gonna have a multitude of women, beautiful women, who you get to pick from and you can have whichever one you want. They'll be your wife. And remember, because it's NBC's The Bachelor, you can do wife stuff before you actually pick a wife. Because it's NBC's The Bachelor. And the guy looks at the guy who's offering this to him and he doesn't even look up from his destitute and despondency. This doesn't even register. There's not even a glimmer of the fantasy of the women that begins to start in his mind. Because he knows how dumb that would be. And then he says, okay, well, that, that's maybe not your thing. Here's what I can offer you. I, I had a conversation with Elon Musk yesterday and Elon has said that he is more than willing to transfer over full ownership and inheritance of both SpaceX and Tesla. And those things are now becoming yours. And to make matters better, he's gonna throw in Twitter as well, all right? All of these things, 
You are gonna be now the sole proprietor. They are now your things. You may not realize this yet, but you just became a boss and a billionaire. You now have power and all the resources to go along with it. And the prisoner doesn't even lift his head. He says, hmm, what is it that this guy really wants? He says, here's the deal. I got some connections. Because I got some connections, I know how to rig elections. No comment. And because I know how to rig elections, I can guarantee the next term, it's gonna be your turn. And the man's eyes are still down. And then finally, after a moment of pause, he looks up at this salesman offering him all of these great things and says, are you Satan himself? All of these things are pointless and helpless to me. All of the power, all of the sex, all of the money, none of these things mean anything to me because I'm condemned to die here. The only thing I need is to be set free. I would trade freedom for all of the women in the world. I would trade my freedom for all of the money in the world. I would trade freedom from all of the power that this life could offer. But you don't offer me freedom. You don't offer me salvation. So go away, you offer me nothing. And it makes sense when we tell a story about prisoners of war, but for some reason, this is our life. As prisoners of war caught up in this enemy battle between good and evil, and we come and the really main thing we need is salvation from this broken fallen world and our broken fallen flesh. But instead we go, okay, I'm still broken, fallen and doomed to die, but let me get a lot of sex with a lot of people. I'm broken, fallen, doomed to die, but let me get a lot of money and security so I can live a safe, comfortable life and retire and sail off into the sunset in Coral Springs. We look for salvation in all these other things and what we have to understand is they cannot be found anywhere. The person who comes the right way, who comes in a way to Jesus where they actually receive Jesus is a person who comes to Jesus and says, all I need is you. I don't need you to make my womb fertile. I don't need you to get me out of debt. I don't need you to make the marriage work again. I don't need you to bring my prodigal son home. All I need, as hard as it may be, all I need is you. Not what you can offer. Not the time with the person that I love to come back to this earth. All I need is you. So the next question really leads us into our second point is what is the extent of this savior's ability to save? How far can he reach into our mess and save us and rescue us out of it? Again, pastor does an amazing job of helping us understand that. He is able to save to the uttermost. It's one of my absolute favorite words in all of scripture, to the uttermost. That's why I love this passage. It reminds me that there is no one who is too far gone. There's no one who is too broken. There's no pit of despondency that you think is the lowest of lows that nobody could ever pull you out of. He is able to save to the uttermost. And here's what you need to understand. There's no one at all who understands how far the uttermost goes to except for Jesus. You don't have any idea how far his grace can outpace your ability to sin. So I wanna talk to two groups of people. First, I wanna talk to the group of people who you may not know Jesus and you doubt whether or not you've ever placed your faith or your hope or trust in Jesus. I wanna talk to you for a second. I want you to understand how far Jesus is willing to go to save you. First of all, he is able to save you to the uttermost of your guilt. We can think about the Osama bin Ladens and Jeffrey Dahmers and school shooters and how far they've gone and how they seem like the most wicked, vile criminals that the earth has ever known for the things that they've done, the Adolf Hitlers, the the mass genocide people. We can think about those guys, but track with me here. If they weren't captured, if they weren't killed, if if they didn't kill themselves and they were allowed to live, what could they have done? more. They could have gone further. And no matter how far Osama 
or Dahmer, or school shooter, or whatever sick, twisted individual there was, no matter how far they could possibly go, they would not have gone farther than the uttermost. And so friend, while you may not be a school shooter, a terrorist, or a psychopath, you have sin. And what I know is true of every single one of you in this room who has sin, sin has taken you further than you ever dared to imagine it would take you. And sin has hurt you and harmed you and has stolen things from you that you feel like you could never get back. But what I'm gonna tell you is the absolute truth. There's no sin that you have committed that cannot be forgiven. And though you may feel like you're at the uttermost place of guilt, that even Satan himself may deserve forgiveness before you, you are wrong. He is able to save to the uttermost of your guilt because he took on that guilt upon himself. Secondly, he is able to save to the uttermost of your rejection. There's some of you in this room and you don't have a great rap sheet of all the things, like you don't have a criminal record as far as that thing is concerned. And for some reason, God's brought you back in here today yet again. And you've had so many of these moments where you were the kid whose head, just not even fully formed right, still soft spot, had a mom holding you in your arms, praying for your salvation, her tears running down her cheek, landing on you as the newborn in her arms, as the mother prayed for your rejection or prayed for your acceptance of Christ, prayed that you would come to know him, believe in him and to trust in him. And you grew up and you went to the Sunday school, you went to the Bible stuff. And for some reason, it just never stuck. You always rebelled. You could not find yourself to ever fully surrender to this God and his love. And many people at the church pushed you further away because of their hypocritical actions. And you had plenty of times where you're at a church or you're at a camp or you're in a sermon and then the preacher was talking to you and it sounded like he was a man who had just been rescued from the pits of hell and he stood up and he spoke to you as a man on fire and you knew in those moments this guy was preaching the absolute truth and you stood there with your hands on the chair as he invited you to come and surrender your life to this Jesus and you gripped the back of the chair for your dear life and you froze in your feet. And instead of walking forward, you walked out. And you may feel in this room like there's been thousands of sermons wasted on you, that there's been thousands of prayers by mothers, fathers, pastors, family members that have been wasted on your life as you've rejected Jesus over and over and over again. But what I'm here to tell you is there's no rejection of Jesus that has disqualified you from being able to be a recipient of his salvation to the uttermost. He can forgive even your uttermost rejection. Now, not only can he forgive your uttermost guilt, your uttermost rejection, he can also forgive your uttermost despair, your uttermost depression. See, what the two previous things do are guilt and our rejection is they cause people outside of Jesus and sometimes people inside of Jesus to feel this shame that throws them into despair, depression, and despondency where they realize that this life must be hopeless, that there is no hope for someone who's done what I've done, who's rejected him like I've rejected him. And this despair has caused many a man to load a gun and not point it at an enemy, but point it in reverse. This despair has caused many a people to fill up a bottle of pills and enjoy the absolute numbing, comfortable death that they bring. See, despair and this hopelessness that sometimes people can get into, this happening all around us, is a reality brought upon by this thought from the pit of hell. What you're experiencing now is actually worse than the hell you'll experience soon. So get it over with. It can't get any worse than right now. And friend, if you are in that dark box, and you feel like you've tried key after key, doctor has tried key after key, psychiatrist has tried key after key, pastor has tried key after key. There is one who holds the keys to death and Hades, the thing that you feel like maybe you should head towards, and he holds them because he's been victorious of them. 
What I'm telling you is the door is still cracked. Satan wants to believe you that the door, Satan wants to tell you and get you to believe the door is closed. There's no darkness in here. I don't know if, if you grew up like me, I was never the kid when mom and dad put me to bed. One of the last things I would say, mama, leave a crack in the door. Dad, leave a crack in the door. Because somehow in the darkness of the room that we find ourselves in, from childhood to adulthood, in the darkness that invades our lives, there needs to be this reminder that your savior has never shut the door on you. And that the door is not something that Satan can close on you. That there is a crack that there, despite you having your eyes closed, you have your eyes closed so you don't see it. And I'm praying today by the power of the gospel that you would open your eyes and realize there's a crack in the door. There's a way out. There's one who can open that. I'm inviting you in. Jesus is gonna stand at that cracked door and wait. Wait. Allow you to see that light shining into that dark room you're in. He's not gonna barge in, flip the switch and pull you out from the covers. But he will stand right there in the cracked door and say, son, daughter, this is not the uttermost. Invite me in, please. Please let me come in. Please let me fling this door wide open and rescue you out of this pit and bed of despair before the bed sores that you've been given from a life frozen by fear and depression kill you. He's able to save to the uttermost. Now, to those of you in this room who are saved, this ability of Jesus to save us who are in Christ to the uttermost is also good news for those of us who are in Christ. What this means when Jesus says, I'm able to save you to the uttermost is not just I'm able to give you that salvation in a moment, boom, you got it, but I'm able to give you saving grace and then sustaining grace. So he says, I'm able to save you to the uttermost. What he's talking about there is there is no pit or level of despair or lack of resources in your life to go to say, I won't save you from that. You can have not a dollar or a dime to your name and Jesus goes, I can save you to the uttermost. You can have a body that is falling apart, riddled by cancer and Jesus says, I can save you to the uttermost. You can have a marriage that's falling apart and Jesus goes, I can save that, you and her and him to the uttermost. You can have kids that are prodigals out there and you can go, Jesus, I'm laying them at your feet and Jesus goes, great, I can save them to the uttermost. There's nothing that we will experience in our lives as Christians that Jesus is not able to save us to the uttermost from. So why fear the world? Why fear what someone thinks about me? Why fear losing the job? Why fear losing the relationship? Why fear poverty because I choose to do what God tells me to do? Why fear those things? Because I fear hurt here more than I fear eternity separated from my father. That's, that's gotta be the only reason. Now, not only is he able to save us as believers, from the uttermost of what may happen in this life. And this is why I love, Satan hates this. He's also able to save us from the uttermost of temptation. So what this means is there is no temptation that you're gonna face that is too strong for Jesus to save you from. Now, contrary to popular belief, this is gonna take you going, I'm choosing to say I'm dead to my flesh and I'm alive to Christ. He cannot... I shouldn't say that. It is very hard, and he does it sometimes. I've seen him do it. When you continue to resurrect your flesh, there's no wonder why it feels like it's not dying. When Jesus says, Son, daughter, you're dead to that craving. Yet we still go, I really like it though. I really want it though. This is where we have to know and understand. Jesus wants you to realize what he has done 
for you. He has saved you to the uttermost from that sin and from that temptation. What this means is you are not saved. This is all what we talked about last week. You are not saved to the uttermost from that thing to continue to struggle with it. To be saved to the uttermost from the sin means, to, means that you're dead to it, not alive to it. So there's no temptation that Satan could come and bring upon your life to say, this is something you have to do. No, I don't have to because I am saved to the uttermost of this craving in my body, of this pull of my flesh. I am saved to the uttermost because my flesh has been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And he reigns victorious over what my flesh longs for. So, the last thing that all of us in this room need to know that he has saved us from the uttermost of. See, he has also saved us from the uttermost of our doubt. A lot of times in churches, you're not allowed to doubt Jesus. You're not allowed to question Jesus. You're not allowed to go, Jesus, how could you do this? How could, you, how could my baby die? How could the marriage fail and you still be a good God? Many churches, you're not allowed to do that. But if Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, I believe he is also able to save to the uttermost of your doubt and the uttermost of your questions about him. And the best thing you can do, hear me, is to actually bring those to him. Walk with me. Doubt does not equal disbelief. More often than not, what I've actually seen in my life be the things that fast forward and move my faith more and deeper into Christ is actually, I'm maybe not allowed to say this, it's actually my doubts. And sometimes we bump into doubts and we hear Satan whisper, ooh, you got that weak faith. Look at you. You doubting how God could be good. You ain't a real Christian. A real Christian would never doubt those things. Meanwhile, Jesus is going, bring that doubt, brother. Come on. If you will walk the road of doubt with me, I will show you nothing but the truth of who I am. Now, Jesus isn't gonna answer all of our questions. He's not gonna show us every truth to every problem we ever bring to him. There are some things this side of heaven that we're never gonna know. But friend, I believe there is truth that he longs to reveal to us. But sometimes we just get in this place where we doubt some things or we have questions around some things and we're scared to ask a pastor about that. We're scared to go on and research some things about that. We're scared to do any sort of digging on that because we feel like our faith will be in question or it won't be real if we let doubt kind of start to go a little bit. But here's what I know. Our God is big enough for doubts. The other side of that, our God is big enough for your anger and your questions. Our God is not like we are as parents. Um, when, when your kid, I mean, when your kid's at the grocery store and they're just losing their ever-loving mind you, because you won't get them Captain Crush berries, what do you want to do? I'm leaving. You can find, and that's, that's what will wake them up real quick, right? They're like, oh crap, like, I don't know how to get out of Publix. <laughs> I better... I'm gonna get over these lucky charms. I better get over this real quick because I, I rode here with them. <laughs> and somehow we, we roll that over to God. And we think that when we throw a tantrum or we, we put our fists in the air and ask God, why are you doing this? Why is this happening? Why can't things be better? Why is this happening? That God's gonna be like a parent in the grocery store and be like, I'm out. He's not. God the Father is not like your father. He's not like your mother. He sees us crying and he goes, okay. <laughs> Whenever you're finished, I'll be here. I ain't got nowhere to go. I can, I can take th three fish and five loaves and make a feast for everybody. Like, I don't need a grocery store. Pitch and fit all you want. And so the reason I'm telling you this is I know many of you in this room have, have had really, really, really hard things happen to you in your life. And those really, really hard things that have happened to you in your life are hanging your life up right now. You feel like your faith is frozen. And what I'm, maybe this week, just take some time and just get honest with God. Trust that he's a father who you can say whatever you need to him. He, he's, I shouldn't say this, but I am. He's a God who can even handle a cuss word. I believe it. I think God would be much more concerned 
with your brutal honesty with him, then you feel like you have to fake it. You coming to God is not like you coming to my office and talking to me. You're talking to the one who knows the things already. There's nothing to hide. You can hide things from me or a pastor or a mom or a dad or a counselor or somebody like that, but you can't, he already knows everything. He knows how you already really feel. And sometimes I'm just, this is out loud counseling here with me. Sometimes, this is my personal experience. I'm not telling God, when I'm being brutally honest with God, I'm not telling him anything that he doesn't know already. But what happens is when I take this beaker full of toxicity, anger, depression, rage, fear, doubt, questions, when I take this thing inside of me that I've just let a drop go in, a drop go in, and I've continued to shove down, and I've continued to shove down, and I've continued to shove down. When I actually take that thing and through my open, honest prayer to God, begin to pour it out, it's amazing for me because I see all of what was in there. And I go, God, it wasn't so much that you needed to hear me say that, I needed to hear me say that so that I could hear how your truth cures that. And I'm telling you, some of you have some messed up stuff on the inside of you and you know it and it's gotta, let it come out. Talk to God, write it out if, you're, if that's how it works better for you. And know that no matter what comes out of you from the deep and dark and scary place, Jesus saves to the uttermost. Now, Last question, end with this. Why? Why is he able to save to the uttermost? Why is he able to do that? Oh, too many. I don't know what's going on. Y'all have to help a brother out here. Can we go? There it is. Okay. Why is he able to save to the uttermost? He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since... He always lives to make intercession for them. Now, track right there with all where it says he always lives. What you need to know is when it says he always lives, it's implying that he also died. So why is he able to make intercession for us? It's because he lives even though he died. It's because he is able to be the one who offers us salvation because he chose not to receive that salvation in and of himself. Why is Jesus able to save you? Answer, because he did not save himself. So we look to this Jesus, we look to this cross and we see the cross now as a blazing center of the glory of God, a reminder that Jesus took to the uttermost our sin, our depression, our failing, our doubts, our confusion, our question, all of our guilt was upon him. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He took sin to its uttermost conclusion, death. All sin leads to death and that's what he took for me and for you. So how can we know that we actually have salvation in him? It's because he died. But friend, the great news is he did not just die. He rose again. Why? He always lives to make intercession them so that we can know he's able to save to the uttermost because he now lives to make intercession for us. What does that mean? What does it mean that he lives to make intercession for me? To answer that question of what does it mean that Jesus right now at this given moment is living to make intercession for me, I think the best place to go is not actually to what he's doing right now as the living, reigning in heaven Jesus, but it's actually to go back to when he was on earth. When he was on the cross, the gospels make it very clear that he's up there on the cross, dying for our sins, whipped, beaten, mutilated, naked, as people hurl insults at him saying, hey, you saved other people, you healed other people, do it to yourself. You're not really God. And while he's up there, we get this account that he's murmuring something under his breath over and over again. You know what it is? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, forgive them. 
They have no idea who I really am. Father, forgive them. Look, this is wild. Maybe you've never made this connection. What Jesus is doing moments before he dies is the very same thing that scripture tells us he is doing on into eternity. He is dying, making intercession for them. And Hebrews 7, 25 tells us he is now always living and making intercession for them. It's amazing. Now, let's make it personal. He's not just looking at a crowd of Roman centurions and religious Jews who would rather have Barabbas over him. They're looking at that crowd going, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Friend, hear me on this. He looks at you. He looks at me. One of the best things I can do for my faith is say the words of Jesus. Father, forgive Trent. He doesn't know what he's doing. Friend, can you hear that in heaven right now? With your name in the blank? Father. Hear Jesus say it. Father, forgive them. Hear him put your name in there. Can you hear the Savior saying that about you? Even now. Here's how we know we can be saved. Because right now, you have somebody who is interceding on your behalf for the very things that would cause you to not have salvation, your sins. Please track with me here. His, his posture and his intercession of your sins is not, here they go again. All right, you ready, God? You got, your, you got the button out? Okay. Uh, and Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Two seconds later. Father, yep, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing still. <laughs> 30 minutes later. Yep, they're about to get in traffic. Just, I'm just gonna, uh, can we just, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing times 15. All right, I know how this is gonna go. I watch them every day. Okay, look, I don't know what you think heaven's gonna be like, but most of us, when we think about heaven, we think it's gonna be great, right? You know, like you hear the country songs, it's like, you know, I wanna live on the outskirts of heaven where I can fish and everything else like that. And there's no songs about going to heaven and just being absolutely miserable, right? So if you think heaven for you is not gonna be absolutely miserable, why would we think heaven for Jesus is gonna be absolutely miserable? Him just sitting up there going like, forgive him, forgive him, forgive him, forgive him, forgive him. No, here's the deal. Jesus gets so much joy and pleasure out of going, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, but I did. And I gave my life to cover that sin. Like the, the, um, here, here's what's wild. Jesus gets immense joy in forgiving you for your sins. Now, yes, does he want to correct you? Does he want you to not continue to stumble and fall over and over and over again? For sure. But if you don't realize and understand, friend, that he gets immense joy from forgiving you, you're not gonna come to him to get it. Jesus's, your ability, <laughs> some of y'all are really good at sinning. Okay, track with me, you know it, don't say amen. Some of us are really good at sinning. Do you know who you're not better at? You're not better at Jesus at saving. You're good at sinning, for sure. But you will never be as good at sinning as he is at saving. Come on. He's ready and willing to save anyone who would come unto him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Keyword, he always lives. And this is where uh, me and Eric were talking about this whole thing this week and figuring out how to communion together and figuring out how to end in a song. And there is no greater song that I think puts to lyrics the gospel message that we're talking about than this song, Because He Lives. That because he lives, I can face tomorrow. That because he lives, all fear is gone. Now let's put it in context. Because he lives is because he died. Because now you can stand before him justified. Because he lives, I can go to the uttermost fear. Because he lives, I can go to the uttermost despondency. Because he lives, I can go to the uttermost running away from him and he's able to save me still because he lives. And so as you take communion and pray, I pray that your heart is turned towards him.
pray and you talk. I'm not a dead Jewish rabbi, but a living Savior who at this very moment infuse your life with that new life. And if you're here and you never put your faith and your trust and your hope in Jesus, I want you to know that he says, any of those who come by my son will be saved to the uttermost. And that salvation is on the line yet again for you today. Do not let it go cold. Do not reject it. I'll be up here afterwards. I'd love to walk you through, to pray with you about what does it mean to put my life and my hope and my trust in Christ. And if that's what you wanna do today, I invite you to come. Let's pray. Father, move in our hearts. Move us out of the way. Let us surrender to how you're moving. We thank you that you were able to save to the uttermost all of those who this very day would draw near to you through Jesus. The Jesus who lives right now and is right now making intercession on our behalf.